What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we're going to be talking about Sadie Robertson Huff. We're going to be talking about her, and I've titled this video, Why She Should Not Preach. So that is what we're going to be diving into. We're going to be listening to her most recent original sermon. I say the word original because she rehashes old sermons a lot when she gives sermons. So we're going to be tackling the most recent example of a new sermon that she has delivered and that came earlier this year. This sermon was pretty revealing in terms of uh, my research on Sadie Robertson Huff. I uh, I don't yet determine that she is a false teacher, but I think it's very likely and the trajectory is very bad. She is a very bad trajectory as a teacher, and it's going to show in this video. So don't forget to like the video. Also subscribe to the channel for more discernment content and such. But uh, you can check out the full verdict at evangelicaldarkweb.org, and that will be linked in the description below. But in the meantime, we're going to be talking about this sermon. It's not the worst sermon that I've ever heard Sadie Robertson Huff deliver, but it is the second worst. And it is the most recent. So with that said, we're going to be looking at this sermon. Uh, it's called Anointed Right Now, delivered February 22nd, 2022. And Sadie Robertson Huff, just a little bit about her. She was the daughter on Duck Dynasty. She was uh, Willie Robertson's daughter that was very prominent in the show. And she's around my own age, slightly younger than me. Uh, two years younger than me. So with that said, it's just you know, important to note uh, that she has become very famous at a very young age. And she's been giving sermons for give or take five years now. And this is after five years of preaching where she's at. So we're going to be taking a deep dive into this sermon. It'll be at 1.5 speed because she is an incredibly slow speaker. And I mean incredibly slow. I can listen to her at one point, uh, we're doing 1.25, I can listen to her at times two speed. All right, powerful stuff. How many of you have already just been so blessed by this weekend? Me included. Wow, this has been awesome. I have to say, woo, a little unsturdy there. I don't normally sit when I preach, if y'all know me or ever seen a video, I'm pretty um, here and there and everywhere, my hands are flying, and I probably will get to that point, but... I must sit and chill for a second because um, 
you know, God is so kind and God is so good. I really hate reading out loud. It is like my biggest fear ever in all of life. And God does call me to do that all the time. He always is like, read this, read this. And most of the time I try to memorize the whole thing. And normally I do because I'm thankful he also gave me a gift of memorizing things pretty quickly. But today we are reading a whole entire chapter of the Bible. And for that reason, I did not memorize it. So we're going to read a story because honestly, a better message than one I could preach is the one God wrote. Amen. And um, I'm actually going to read it from the message version. Um, Okay, pause right there. Actually, there's a few things I want to point out. First, the message is not the Bible. It is a crappy commentary at best. Or a par I don't even think it's a paraphrase. Like maybe I don't recognize paraphrases as the Bible. Now I'm a word for word NASB ninety five kind of guy because I'm, you know for I don't know, I'm not pretentious about it. But uh I'm a NASB ninety five guy. Uh, the message is not the Bible. So anytime he, someone gives a sermon out of the message, they are not giving a sermon out of the Bible. That is something that needs to be noted. Memorize that. That is a telltale sign that the, you know this is not a good teacher. Is that they're using the message as the Bible. Uh, another thing I want to note is that she is very poorly dressed. But she's poorly dressed in a pretentious sort of way, like Kanye West and his crappy fashion apparel. It's like that, but on a woman and not a guy, not uh, Kanye West. So that's just something to note. She always comes and delivers sermons poorly dressed. Uh, this is in sweatpants, and I, I, it's not like I'm being, I'm trying, I'm not being legalistic about this, but you know, to me. Uh, how seriously are you taking this occasion? How reverential are you even treating your own? This is her own conference. So Sadie Robertson Hoff throws a live original conference, and this is how she dresses her own conference. I don't know. Is, is this a slumber party or something? I don't. I don't know. But she never dresses well for a sermon, in my opinion. I'm not trying to Joan Rivers fashion police this, but it's just something that sticks out to me. Um, not because the regular version isn't good enough, because it is so good, but honestly, I just love how the message version actually tells the story like a story, and I just think it's so cool because God is a storyteller. Like, he is a good storyteller, which I appreciate because I like a person who can tell a good story. My dad is like the best storyteller I know in human form. There he is over there. Um, my other father is the other best, um, God in heaven, and he just writes a really, really good story, and this message translation or version is just so, so cool when it comes to the story of David. And so I want to remind y'all of the story of David, and not necessarily when David killed Goliath, which we are going to talk about, but I want to remind you of the moment when David was anointed. So the title of my message, if you're taking notes, is called Anointed Right Now. And I want everyone to really hear those words, really get those words, and receive those words. Anointed Right Now. So we're going to pick up in chapter 16, and in chapter 16, this is kind of where we're at in the history of the story. So basically, Saul was the king of Israel. He was actually the first king of Israel. And Saul um, had all the things, I guess, all the equipment he needed to be a king. He was equipped to be a king, but he was not humble. He was not obedient. He did not have a pure heart before the Lord. And so therefore, Saul couldn't be the king anymore. They now need a new king of Israel. And so God is sending Samuel, who's the prophet. So Samuel was hearing from the Lord. He was a prophet at the time to go and find a new king for Israel. But he wasn't just like, go aimlessly search for a new king. He was like, I have someone in mind. Go find this person. But didn't give him all the details. 
So we're going to pick up, and we're just going to read the story because it's, it's so good. It says, God addressed Samuel. So how long are you going to mope over Saul? You know I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your flask with anointing oil and get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've spotted the very king I want among his sons. He said, I can't do that. Saul will hear about it, and he's going to kill me. And God said, take a cow with you and announce, I've come to lead you in worship of God with this cow as a sacrifice, and make sure Jesse gets invited. I'll let you know what to do next. I'll point you to the one that you're going to anoint. Which, first of all, I just love that he says, make sure Jesse gets invited. And if you're reading it from the regular version, it literally says the same thing. It's like, make sure Jesse's there. And I just love that just from the get-go, because isn't it so true that, like, when you meet someone, you're just like, man, it's like God brought us together, you know? And we say these things, or it's like, man, I feel like God just, like, knew we were going to meet. And we almost say it kind of as just, like, a cute thing to say, but isn't it actually kind of cool that he actually did bring you together? Like, he actually was like, hey, make sure Jesse's there, because when Jesse gets there, y'all are going to meet, and something crazy is going to happen, because I know y'all so well. I just love that. He's such a good storyteller. So then it says, Samuel did what God told him. When he arrived to Bethlehem, the town of fathers greeted him, but they were apprehensive. Is there something wrong? Because it was kind of weird that Samuel was here. In Bethlehem, they're like, "What are you doing here? This is kind of weird." And they assured him, "Nothing's." He assured him, "Nothing's wrong. I'm just here um, to do a worship ceremony. Basically, let me find my place." He said, um, "Nothing's wrong. I come to sacrifice this cow and lead you in worship of God. Prepare yourselves, be consecrated, and join me in worship." He made sure Jesse and his sons were also consecrated and called to worship. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought. This guy is the anointed one of God. Isn't that funny? Just by looks, he's like, yep, this is him. This is him. But then God said, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges people differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face, but God... Sorry. I got to cringe because of the message. The message is cringe. God looks at the heart. So good goes on to say, then Jesse took a look at Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. And then he said, nope, this isn't uh, God's choice either. Next, Jesse presented Shema. And Samuel said, nope, this isn't the man either. Jesse presented his seven sons to Samuel. Samuel was pretty blunt with Jesse and said, God hasn't chosen these. Then he said to Jesse, is this it? Are there any more sons? And he said, well, there's a, the runt, but he's out there tending the sheep. And Samuel ordered Jesse, go get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. Jesse sent for him, he brought him in, and he was the very picture of health, bright-eyed and good-looking. And God said, up with your feet, anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took a flask of oil, anointed him with his brother standing there, and get this, this is the most important part. And the Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, and God vitality empowering him for the rest of his life. That's what that anointing meant, that the Spirit of God was rushing into David's life, and it never left him for the rest of his life. So I want to ask you a question. And this is not a trick question, and I sincerely do not want you to answer this question, like raise your hand if you really don't know what this means, or if you're really not sure. Like, just raise your hand if you believe that you are anointed. Okay, awesome. So I'm thankful for the ones who didn't raise their hand because they're genuinely not sure. Because I was actually really confused by this word whenever I first started like preaching and stuff. Because I really never heard this word. I didn't really like notice this word that much in the Bible, even though it's everywhere. But people just started coming up to me and they were like, man, you're so anointed. And I would just be like, great. Like I kind of just thought that meant like I'm doing something for God. So I was like, that's awesome, you know, like a compliment. Well, then I was like, some places I would preach and people would be like, man, the anointing was so strong. Or like people would say like, that anointing was so thick. Like the anointing of their night was so good. And I was like, okay, which then it kind of confused me on what anointing must mean. Because then I was like, well, are sometimes you more anointed than other times? And are some people more anointed than you are? And you know, what if I lose the anointing? And every time I would speak, I would pray like, God, like, please give me the anointing. Because I don't want to go up here and not have this anointing. Because everyone is like, this is anointed. And so I was just like, and yes, my brain is weird. And I freak out over little things. And I'm like, what does this mean? And so finally, I look up what this means. 
And I found great comfort in what anointing actually means. So the word anointed literally means to be set apart or empowered. It also means to consecrate yourself, which literally means to make or declare something sacred. And so here's the amazing thing. See, back in the day of David's day and age, the Holy Spirit wasn't here yet, right? Because Jesus, whenever he was on earth, remember how he said, whenever I leave, it's going to be a good thing because something better is coming that will literally be the power inside of you. So back in the day, the Holy Spirit wasn't here. So to be anointed by the Spirit of God, for the Spirit of God to actually be inside of you, you had to be anointed. And so Samuel, because he was in direct conversation with God, he had the Spirit of God in him, he got to go anoint someone. He could literally give that Spirit to this person. Well, things changed when Jesus came, right? Because when Jesus came, Jesus said, when I leave, whenever I die on the cross and then I'm crucified, all this stuff, and then I resurrect, the Holy Spirit's gonna come into you and it's gonna empower you to go out and tell the world. So here's the amazing thing. If you've made a declaration that you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, you are anointed. So that means everyone in here is anointed. So the re- That's not what that means. Uh, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, one turn to heaven. So, a- again, I understand what she's trying to say, but if you're, you know, if you take that out of context, that is a dangerous thing to say, which is why she shouldn't be so flippant about saying, if you do this, then you are saved. If you declare that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Like, a profession of faith does not make you saved. Uh, it's evidence, but it's not complete. Anyone can say that they are a Christian. Saying that you are a Christian does not make you saved, and that's kind of the problem with a very flippant, careless line like that. But listen to this next part, because it also gets it gets a little worse. The reason why I did the altar call at the beginning of the message is because I didn't want anyone in here to not feel like they were anointed. So I made sure everybody was in relationship with Jesus so that I could genuinely and honestly say, you were all anointed. Every one of you is anointed. Every one of you is set apart. Every one of you is empowered by the Spirit of God because you have already consecrated and made a declaration of something sacred in your life that Jesus is the King of your life. So you are anointed. Now, the first point I want to... Okay, again, altar calls, to me, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely against altar calls as a practice because it kind of is emotionally manipulative, uh, you know, especially in the way mega churches use altar calls, I just see it as emotionally manipulative, especially when you had people like Elevation Church, Stephen Furtick's church, had pe- plants in the audience for altar calls and spontaneous baptisms and stuff like that, just to create an environment of emotional manipulation. So altar calls are definitely, I, I don't think we should be doing that as a church and she did it at the beginning of the sermon at of the sermon that she's giving here so that she could have a profession of faith from everyone in the audience so that just seems like emotional manipulation cultural or social manipulation as well where you're trying to coax someone to say that they're saved even though they might not be saved even and who knows whether they articulated what self, what it means to be a christian before or during said altar call. So this is a very reckless practice. And it's wrong, in my opinion. It's manipulative. 
and you're using this as the basis, you're using a manipulative practice as the basis for um, for the rest of her sermon, for her point about what it means to be anointed and how everyone is anointed. So that is, to me, very careless. I, you know, even in an audience of Christians, I don't think I could go in thinking everyone was saved unless I knew everyone individual's faith profession and knew it was credible. That That's just me. But otherwise, to me, I think the gospel gets preached like they've never heard it the first time. To make them. Because there's some things we need to know about anointing. But before I do that, I actually want to just read a scripture. So just in case anybody's confused or like, I don't know if you're right on that, I'm just going to tell you. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, 22. If you ever don't feel like you're anointed, but you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, go read 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22. And it says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And he has anointed us. And he who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So there it is. If Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, then you have been given an anointing. It's powerful. So David was this special person, you know, in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament, because he was anointed, but all of you are special because all of you are anointed too. And if you know the story of David's life, and you're already jumping ahead, and you're like, and he killed a giant with a slingshot, that means you can do stuff like that too, because you have the Spirit of God inside of you. So I want everyone in here to say the words, I am anointed. Now I want you to say, no matter where I am, because I want you to tell you something funny about this story. So this is why we have to read the whole thing. Because after David was anointed, we know that he was anointed to be king, but David actually didn't know he was anointed to necessarily be king. He was just anointed by the Spirit of God. See, Samuel was looking for a new king, but Saul's time wasn't actually up yet. So when David was anointed, guess where David went right after he was anointed? Back with the sheep. So everybody say, I'm anointed. Now say, even if I'm with the sheep. Because sometimes it'd be like that. You know, sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes you're like, I'm anointed, but why am I watching the sheep? Why am I out here with the sheep? I, I'm supposed to be king, right? But it's not time to be king yet. It's time to watch the sheep. So we keep going. Says, you see how she's reading herself into the story? She's reading herself into the story, identifying as David. And she's drawing the wrong conclusions about the context of the times and the culture. Uh, specifically, again, David would have been expected to have kept the sheep. I don't think... We, we shouldn't view that as diminishing because that's not the message of the text. Here's what the message of that of David's anointing is. The, the, not the uh, Eugene Peterson message, but the actual meaning of the text. The meaning of the text is that David was anointed by God. He was not anointed by Samuel, and he was not anointed by Jesse. David could only have been chosen by God because of how unlikely and unseen, uh, un, un, you know, his his father and his brothers did not see see what God saw to do with David in David. They did not see that, but God did. Samuel did not see that either. He was very content to settle with the first brother. But the point of the text is that David's anointing was completely on God. At this very moment, the Spirit of God left Saul, and, it's, and there was a black, sorry, 
wind. It was a black mood sent by God, settled on him, and he was terrified. Saul's advisor said, this awful tormenting depression from God, he's making your life miserable. Oh, master, let us help you. Let us look for someone who can play the harp. Now, just, let's just note this for a second. Does playing the harp have anything to do with being king? Nope. Okay, cool. Thank you. I love the honesty over here. When the black mood from God moves in, he plays his music, and you'll feel better. So Saul said, go ahead, find me someone who can play well. Bring him to me. One of the young men spoke up and said, I know someone. I've seen him myself. He's the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. He's an excellent musician. He's also courageous. He's of age. He's well-spoken. He's good-looking, and God is with him. Somebody said, God bless David. Oh, wow. So then it says, so Saul sent a message to Jesse requesting, send your son David to me, the one who tends the sheep. So here we have this anointed person. He is anointed. He is gifted. He is good-looking. He is killing it, and he's keeping the sheep. So my point is, you can be gifted, you can be anointed, you can be called by God, you can even have it in your future that you might be king, but that does not mean that your anointing and your timing with the sheep is not extremely important in your life. His time with the sheep, he's out there, and he's playing the harp. Do you think he thought that that harp was going to get him anywhere in life? Probably not. He probably just playing the harp because he likes to play the harp. He has a gifting with music, so he's playing the harp. He's not trying to promote himself. He's not going around the palace and playing the harp. Notice that. He's not like outside Saul, like, notice me, I'm so awesome. He's not like trying to get a, you know, a meeting with the king. He's not striving. He's literally sitting with the sheep playing the harp. He didn't have to promote himself because when you're anointed, you don't have to promote yourself. When you're anointed, you don't have to get a shout out. When you're anointed, you don't have to strive for someone to notice you because God sees you and God's timing on when you will be seen will be intentional. And it won't be until you're ready. And everybody better say praise God for that. So David, he's not promoting himself. He's not striving. He's not trying. He's not seeking out a meeting. He's not doing any of that. And someone says, I know someone because he's awesome and he's excellent at what he does, and he has good character. And the last thing he said, it says it in the message version, it says it in the ESV and the NIV and all the things it says, but most importantly, God is with him. So the thing that really qualified him was that God was with him. That's what made people want to be around him, that God was with him. And I love how when David, he goes in, and he's playing for the king and all this stuff in this season, and he's not trying to be king. He's not trying to rush the process, because so many of us do that. It's like we finally get our opportunity, and then we just want it to just blow up, and we try to rush the process, and we try to promote ourselves to all these people, and we don't even realize that we actually even try to promote ourselves to God. We say, God, I'm so anointed. Why am I with the sheep? As if he didn't anoint you. I'm so gifted, God. You gave me this gift. Why don't you use it with me? God, God. Why am I with the sheep? God, I'm supposed to be king. You, you put this plan on my life. You have this calling for my life. You've told me that. Why am I with the sheep? And God's like, you don't know that while you're with the sheep, I'm preparing you. You don't know that while you're playing the guitar, I'm preparing you. You don't know that while you're making those Instagram posts, I'm preparing you. You don't know that while you're praying, I'm preparing you. So before you promote yourself, you just need to prepare yourself. Because before I can actually put you in front of any kind of kingdom, before I could ever put you in front of giants, I got to make sure that you know how to steward a sheep. I got to make sure that you have a heart posture that is pure. You know why he had to make sure of that? Because he just saw that Saul didn't have that. Saul had everything else but that, and it didn't work. So yeah, you could be qualified with all the things that could make you king, but if you don't have a pure heart, you're not going to be king. If you don't figure out how to sit with the sheep and tend those, if you don't figure out how to play your gifting well, then who's going to notice? How are you going to get seen? It takes being faithful in those private moments. Faithful obedience in the private moments are what's going to make you prepared and confident in the public moments. So important that y'all get that. Faithful, let me say it one more time, I'll let you write it down. Faithful obedience in private moments is going to be what makes you prepared and confident in public moments. 
Everybody say, I am anointed. Say, no matter what I have. Because that's my next point. I'm anointed no matter what I have. We've talked about this a lot this week because we talk about like being equipped and all this stuff and being qualified and whatnot. You really are anointed no matter what you have and you really are anointed no matter what things you can obtain because why you're anointed has to do way more with who you are than what you have. It has to do everything with not only who you are but whose you are. It has to do with who you've made a declaration with Jesus Christ. And so David, skip forward a little bit in his life, but I want to note one more thing. So after David... I want to pause right there because it's not it's it's who god is not who you've made a declaration to because god does the saving she's got the order of our operations wrong here god saves us we could not choose god god saves us so i think we have a lot of narcissus here about you know look at me look at me look at me and I've made a profession of faith, however credible, and therefore all these good things should happen to me in life. And, you know, if it's not right happening right now, God's preparing me for when it does. And it's not like that's never true. It's not like that's never true, but is that the meaning of the text? The answer is no. The meaning of the text, as I said, has to do with David's anointing was by God. It was not by Jesse. It was not by Samuel. And it certainly wasn't by Saul. David was in the palace and he was playing the uh, music for Saul. Guess what he did after that? You might think he went and, you know, slayed Goliath. No, he went back to the sheep. Literally, and it says it in the word. Because whenever he came to fight Goliath, he didn't come from Saul. He actually came from being with the sheep. It says that Jesse sent him from being with the sheep. And I'm just like, that's so crazy. So do y'all realize that it wasn't just like six months? It wasn't just like a couple weeks. It was like five years, they believe, from the time that he was anointed, from the time that he was fighting Goliath. And when he was fighting Goliath, he wasn't even king yet. So like, that's kind of a lot of time. But then you read other stories, and like Moses, it took them like 40 years in the wilderness. I'm just saying like, God is a God, a very specific time, and that time sometimes is not going to fit in your timeline that you made for yourself. And my best advice for you is ditch the timeline because his time is so much better and it's intentional. So David didn't have a lot. In fact, he really had nothing. But I love how the next part of the story pans out. So in chapter 17, Goliath enters the picture. And it says, a giant nearly 10 feet tall stepped out from the Philistines' line into the open. Goliath from Gath, he had a bronze helmet on his head. He Okay, I'm pausing right here because this is a shift in the sermon. And this is a shift for the worse. Uh, because this is where you see her really not, really have an amateur understanding of the text. One unbefitting of someone at on a stage at a pulpit. Like, able to teach is one of the qualifications of an elder. Also being a man. But I think that was a bit obvious. He was dressed in armor, 126 pounds of armor. He wore bronze shin guards and carried a bronze sword. He had a spear like a fence rail. The spear tip alone weighed over 15 pounds. He had a shield uh, barrier that walked ahead of him. I mean, he had like everything that you could ever possibly have to be a champion. And they even called him a champion from Gath. And I just love that in this story, there's this guy who's known as a champion. And he literally has it all. And as we all know, he didn't win the battle. 
And so once again, like, you literally don't need to have the stuff. And I say that to you because you read that and you're like, or you hear that and you're like, I know, like, I know that that's so true and it's so easy to amen that. But then you go into your business or you go into your work and you feel like you need all the stuff. You feel like... I want to pause right there because, again, she doesn't understand the culture or the context here. Um, the Philistines are widely believed, the leading theory is that they were an Aegean people, like they came from the Aegean Sea. So they were not originally from there, and I, I believe the uh, theory is that they settled, you know, while the Hebrews were in Egypt, the Philistines came over. So uh, they are an Aegean people, which means proto-Greek civilization, so, you know, when you think about the Trojan War, you think about the champions, right? Achilles. You think about Achilles, you think about uh, Hector, I believe, is the other one. Uh, you think about those figures. So, those figures, being the champions, is a cultural remnant from that time period. And since this is the Bronze Age... Uh, this is a Bronze Age civilization. We have bronze armor, a shield bearer, you know, like a squire in battle. You know, all these concepts that she does not seem to understand. Like you need all the followers. You need all the attention. You need all of the things to work out. You need all the employees. You need all of the things. Like, but actually, like you don't need it. Like if you don't have it right now, then you don't need it right now. Because you already have what you need. You know how we always say like God doesn't... Um, called like the qual he doesn't equip what's the what's the he equips the called i love that so much and i think it's almost even bigger than that. like not only does he like equip the call because i think sometimes when we think about him equipping the call you think like he equips you when you're called but he actually has already equipped you like before you even felt called like do you realize like he was equipping david this whole time while he was shepherding those sheep and while he was playing that music and it really all pans out right now so it says enter david he was the son of jesse from bethlehem and judah and it goes on to say which is just so hilarious that um, he was the youngest of the sons and then it says one day jesse told david take this sack of cracked wheat and these 10 loaves of bread run them down to your brothers in the camp and take these 10 wedges of cheese to the captain of your division like this is just so hilarious so goliath literally had it all and david no joke had a charcuterie board it's literally what he had. He's like, Goliath, like, I have bronze, and I have a spear, and I have a javelin, and I have this amazing thing. It's 126 pounds. And David's like, here's my charcuterie work. I have 10 wedges of cheese and some bread. Like, this guy does not even seem like he's going to fight because he didn't even know he was going to fight. He didn't feel, he, I don't even know that he felt called in that moment. I don't even know what he felt in that moment. But the last thing he was was equipped for that moment. But you know what he was for that moment? He was anointed for that moment. He was set apart for that moment. He was ready for that moment. And you know why he was anointed for that moment? Because of who he was, not because of what he had. You know, everyone else there was probably a better person for the job, but no one else there had the burden on their heart to fight Goliath. Only David did. You know, actually, David started talking about, like, why is no one fighting him? Because when they were there, like, Goliath not only was, like, taunting them and all this stuff, but he was also being, like, very mocking of the God that Israel served, which is our God. And David was so bothered by that. And he was like, who, like, why are we not fighting him? And his brother Eliab, who, you know, uh, back in the last chapter, Samuel said he might be the anointed one. He got so mad at David for even saying that because he thought that David saying that, David was expecting him to do it. And he was like, why'd you even come here? Like, you're ruining everything. Like, now I'm going to go die in front of Goliath because you came and I'm clearly the person that you're talking about because I am so perfect for the job. And David's like, no, 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 I'll fight him. Like, you don't have to fight. Like, I'll fight him. And I love that because David realized no one else feels the burden for this. No one else feels the call for this. No one else thinks they can do it. But David not only was like, I will do it. He's like, I'm going to do it. And this giant is going to die. 
which is absolutely crazy because he had a charcuterie board. He had nothing. He was a wimp. He was tiny. He wasn't even the one that literally his own father was like, he is the last person I would ever choose out of my boys to be anointed. And he was like, oh, I can do this because he knew he was anointed. There was- Again, you're kind of diminishing David despite the fact that you were kind of building him up as the, you know, he was being groomed for being all these different things. And now you're saying that he was a wimp and all this other stuff. I mean, we call David and Goliath an underdog story. In reality, it's really not because Goliath was fighting God, not David. And God used David to smite Goliath. There's no question about it. He knew God prepared him. You know why? He'd seen the spirit of God move on his life. Listen to what David said. He said, I've been a shepherd, which first of all, can we just stop? I've been a shepherd tending the sheep for my father. The very thing that everyone else is mocking him for, he's proud of. Isn't that crazy? Like, he's not embarrassed that he's a shepherd. He's like, I'm a shepherd. I, I tend the sheep. So that's why I'm ready for this. And what all of them were saying was, hey, you actually aren't ready for this. The very verse before he said that, Saul literally said, he said, you can't go and fight the Philistine. You're too young and you are inexperienced. And he's been fighting, he's been in the fighting business since before you were born. So Saul literally said right before, like, you're not qualified for this. You actually cannot do this. You should not do this. This is a very bad idea. So he literally had people mocking him. He had people telling him he can't. And he said, I can't. Not because of, he, I'm a shepherd. I kept the sheep. And Saul's probably like, yeah, that's why you can't do this. But listen to what he said after that. He said, whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it, knock it down, and rescue the lamb. If it turned on me, I'd grab it by the throat, wringing its neck and killing it. Lion or bear, it made no difference. I killed it. And I'll do the same for this Philistine pig, gotta love the message version, who is taunting the troops of God alive. God who delivered me from the teeth of the lion and the claws of the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. Like, what confidence in his anointing. But you know how he was confident? Because he was faithful in the private moments. Because he was obedient in the private Because he stepped out when a lion and bear came and he trusted God. Hebrews 10.35, I will not forget the confident trust I have in you, Lord, for that will be richly rewarded. You know how you get confident trust in God? You see God be God. When you see God be God, you're not going to doubt that God's going to be God. When you see your own hands kill a lion and a bear, you don't doubt that something inside of you that's bigger than who you are just worked on your behalf. Then the next time when you see a giant, you're like, yeah, seen this, done this, my guy can handle this. It didn't matter that he was a shepherd boy, he was anointed. You know what that meant when he was anointed? You all know what it means, that the spirit of God lives inside of him. And if the spirit of God lives inside of me, this giant is no match for me. Y'all, what a message. You see, I kind of talked about in that first point about we're anointed no matter where we are. Talked about this why question we ask. Like, God, why am I keeping the sheep? Like, I'm anointed. Why am I keeping the sheep? I'm gifted. Why? And sometimes our why looks like a prideful why. This is called Narcissus, where you're trying to read yourself into the text, especially along the lines of keeping the sheep. Like, she is narcissizing this. Like, literally, why not me? Like, I'm so awesome, God. Like, why would I not have the platform? Why would I not have the space? And that's, like, just a very natural thing for us to get to. Like, why, God? Like, seriously, why would I not be where I want to be in life right now? And there's this other why that sometimes we ask, and this is the why I ask. It's this fearful why, like, why me, God? Like, he's so big and I'm so small. Like, why? I feel so intimidated. I feel so, why, God? Like, why me? Really, anyone else could do this. Like, why? And we always ask God these why questions. Why do I live here? Why am I in this spot? Why am I keeping the sheep? Why am I tending the flock? Why am I fighting this giant? Why, God? Why, why, why? And I hear our generation say why so much to God. And God can handle your why questions. He really can't. I'm not saying that he can't. I'm not even saying that he doesn't appreciate when you ask why. But I do want us to maybe find an answer for that why right here that maybe we can stick with whenever we start to question. Because there are several times in the Bible where people do ask that why question. Moses asked the why. He said, God, why me? It was almost that fearful why. Why me? Why would you send me? And God answers that question with I am who I am. So he didn't really answer the why other than just like 
I am God, so period. That's my answer. And then Jesus actually asked why. When he was on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Which is really crazy that Jesus is God and he asked why, but Jesus was human in that moment when he asked why. Why, God? So that why question is so easy for us to get to the place of asking because we just don't understand why he would do what he's doing. But see, we can look at Jesus' life and know that in that moment, it was probably so hard just to carry the weight of everyone said not probably. It was just devastatingly hard to carry that weight. And it was just like, why? But Jesus knew and God knew that because three days later, he's going to rise and that's going to give hope for the entire world to rise with him. So there was this why that God was doing something bigger behind the scenes. And so there's these two whys, and there's many other whys, there's whys in our life. But then I was like, where's the time that God really answered the why? And I think Jesus kind of answered it in a God way in this one story in the Bible, whenever there was this man who was blind. And someone asked him, he said, Rabbi. So we're on a tangent about the word why. And I don't even think the text of David and Goliath really speaks to the issue of why me. It really doesn't. David doesn't seem to have any confidence issues or any reluctance at that to his anointing and to his timing either. David is not lamenting his timing. And if you wanted to, you know, maybe make it, uh, use a passage where David is lamenting his timing, uh, I'm not even sure if that passage exists. Because even when he's being hunted by Saul, even when he has to be a vassal for uh, Israel's enemies, uh, he's still very patient, very confident in God's plan. This this is a story about confidence in God, uh, especially, you know, the power of God and the will of God. This isn't a why me. So I I don't understand the connection that she's making to this point to the text. It's not even a terrible point. It just is not in this text. Why is this man blind? He said, who of his parents sinned that this would happen? So he's basically saying, why did this happen? Like, who did something wrong that this would happen? Because that's how we think too. Like, what went wrong or why not? Like, why? And Jesus said, so that God's glory may be on display. And I genuinely think that is the answer to every why. And sometimes that is not unpacked for us, but that has to be enough for us. I don't know why this is happening. To her credit, this is a very good point. The glory of God. Uh, If you want a blanket answer to a why question, uh, you know, again, uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, the primary motivation of God is the glory of God. Uh, we Catholics and Protestants would agree with this. Of, of the five solos, they would agree with uh, soli deo gloria. For the glory of God alone. They would agree on this sola. They wouldn't agree on sola scriptura, but they would agree on this one. Or at least at the time, that wasn't really in dispute. So... That This is a good point, and this is a point that can be made with the text. So she doesn't need to go to that text to make that point. She could have used David and Goliath to make that point. Let's see if she'll bring it back. But your glory is on display, God, and I don't need you to go any further than that, but I'll just trust that that's enough. I don't know why you haven't given me a platform yet, 
But I believe your glory is on display as I'm playing this music and I'm tending the sheep. I don't know why I was hurt like that. That person really hurt me, God. Why? But your glory is on display. So don't let my why get in the way of your glory on display. That rhymes. And I was just thinking about that because I'm like, you know, David represents the story of Jesus. But I do think that when we read the story of David, we can see a lot of ourselves in it. But what was different than David than ourselves is it didn't seem like David ever asked why. He always knew that God's glory was on display. He always knew that God was doing something. There was like a contentment over his life. And you just get to see as you read the story, like God's plan throughout the whole thing. Like, why was he tending the sheep? Because he was getting prepared to fight the giant. Because guess what? When he fought Goliath and he actually won, you know what he had? He had a slingshot. And that's how he killed Goliath. Well, at the time, you can... False. He had a sling. These are two different tools. These are two different weapons. And it's clear that I don't think she really knows what a sling is. Let me just Google this. What was the number one weapon used by shepherds in Bible days? Slingshots. So the Slings. reason he knew how to use a slingshot is because that is how he defended himself and his sheep. So had he not done that, he wouldn't have been ready. And I love that he had the opportunity to wear Saul's armor, but he didn't because he knew no one else's armor could be any better than the things that he had already practiced with, the things he had already prepared. And so many times we get in the space where we have the opportunity, and then we look around and we're like, oh, if only I had what she had. But you're like, no, actually, God's equipped you long ago. I mean, again, this is where she doesn't really know much about the culture, does not know much about... Uh, ancient warfare in general i can kind of fill this gap for her because slings were a skirmishing weapon uh they're a skirmishing weapon and a sling and this i i looked this up and it was, it's a pretty fun fact uh a sling would have the stopping power of a bullet not the penetration power but the stopping power especially you know when you get into like the roman era where they had lead slings they slung lead pellets at people. That would have the stopping power of a handgun. So that was pretty deadly. So when D Goliath gets hit hit in the dome, that's a, that's a kill shot. That's why you had. That's why uh, skirmishers used these weapons and slung st stones. That's why it it's a skirmishing weapon. So you don't put heavy armor presumably heavy armor of a king, on a skirmisher. So Saul was being stupid here. Your your best tactic with Goliath is to keep your distance. So David was actually being pretty smart here. It wasn't just blind hubris in the confidence of God. It was actually, you know, there was a practical intelligence here as well that that armor would weigh him down. It would slow him down. It could get in the way of his form, potentially, if he's never worn it before and it wasn't fitted for him. Uh, she does not know this, the concept of a sling. She does not know the, you know, the background of the Philistines and why they have a, uh, she's not familiar with the concept of single combat as an ancient fighting practice. She's not familiar with the culture of the text, which makes her very limited in her ability to teach the text. This is a very amateurish Bible story hour that we're seeing. And she is being paraded around as a young, gifted speaker. And she, she's really not. She sounds like she's a normal 
talking at a normal pace at 1.25 speed, but if you listen to her at normal speed, it's God incredibly put long slow. Ago, and all of those things in your life that seemed random was actually God's intention. All of those things that seemed so random were actually God's preparation. And so I want us to really think about tonight how God's been intentional in our life. I have three questions I'm going to ask you to sit on, and we're going to make space, just kind of how we did earlier, where everyone just get with God, get with yourself, have your journal, and write down these questions. It'll be on the screen in a second, so you don't have to write them down. Just listen to me first. Ask, what is your why question? Not what is your why. That's a good question, too. That's what is your why question? What's been that why that's been stopping you from just trusting that God's glory is on display in your life? Like, what is that why out of fear? What is that why out of pride? What is that why out of pain? What has that why been? And just let God speak to you. And if there's not a direct answer, then I literally want you to write on your journal, I trust that your glory is being put on display in my life through this why. Then I want you to ask, what do you feel specifically called to be faithful in? So David was out there being faithful with the sheep. David was out there being faithful with his guitar and his music, which actually is the doorway that got him into the palace. So that was really important. It was actually really important that David played that very well because... You're called to be faithful in every area of your life. You're not called to compartmentalize your faith. That That's a very bad, or careless, I should say, point that she's that's making. That's what actually got him into not only being around the king, but learning from the king. Like, isn't that cool, too, that he was mentored by the king because he was playing music for him, and then later he became king, so he actually had some idea of what it looked like to be king because he got to play music for one? Like, isn't that cool? God was even preparing him in that. So, like, what do you need to be faithful to? And lastly, what in your life has seemed random but you're starting to see now is actually God's intention. I had uh, Rachel on my team put a video together of a lot of things in my life when I was little that seemed completely random that actually came into play. All right, we're going to stop it right there because I'm not going to watch her video at the end. Uh, but at, I think the problem is this is five years into her preaching and she still sounds like she has very amateurish understanding of the text. Uh, for the majority of that sermon, she had two Bibles, so one of them was the message, the other one presumably was not the message. So she didn't really give... Uh, the meat of her sermon was not from the Bible, so that's one prop. That That is a major red flag. Uh, you know, again, you know, how she's dressed and her ability to speak, which is not great, and then, you know... That stuff is secondary to her ability to teach. And again, I think First uh, Timothy chapter 2 is very clear on the qualifications for an elder. And that includes functioning as one, which she often does. She does give sermons. Uh, she does uh, preach at churches on Sundays. This is part of her repertoire. I get that this is a conference that she's doing, but it's not like she's not going to turn around and give the same sermon somewhere else. So she's stepping into the role of a teacher. That's why it was very legitimate for me to do a research paper or research uh, write-up on her. And at first I was like, she's just a celebrity. This isn't really what I do. But as I saw that she steps into this role, it became increasingly curious and what i've seen is that the internet had a far higher demand to just examine whether she's a real teacher a legitimate teacher or false teacher or not the internet had a, a great demand for that that far exceeded the supply because no one really no one cr really credibly examined or fairly examined 
Sadie Robertson Huff, and I do in the article that I wrote, and you should read that. That is, this is breaking ground, and that's what I like to do at Evangelical Dark Web is break ground on potential false teachers that no one has really written about yet or related to the fact that they, this person might be a false teacher. What research out there is there to kind of support or diffuse it? I don't think Sadie Robertson Huff is a false teacher yet. Yet is the operating term here. But this is five years into her preaching. She is 24 years old, so younger than me. What is she going to be like at 30? What is she going to be like at 40? Is she going to be the next Beth Moore? Is she going to be the next Victoria Osteen? Uh, Christine Kane? There is not a single discerning bone in her body. She is not someone who's gifted in discernment whatsoever. She has hung out with every false teacher, or not every false teacher, but uh, it's harder to come up with a list of false teachers she would not hang out with. So Craig Rochelle, Mike Todd, Bianca Olsoff. Uh, I did a video on how she was reading the Bible like Cardi B. She did, you know, she hangs out with a lot of questionable characters. So there's not a discerning bone in her body. I think she's being personally groomed into, you know, this is mega church culture at work here. She's being groomed into being a teach into being a false teacher. So I want to, be sincere that I do want her to change. Uh, you know, I have nothing against her prior doing this. This is just me answering reader curiosity that, but I think the trajectory is bad and I'm concerned about that. So I'm, I'm concerned that she will be, uh, revealed as a false teacher. And I don't want to see that. I really don't, but she is disobeying First Timothy chapter two. She is disobeying that uh, that verse, and she's not good at preaching out of scripture. She just is not. She's not sticking to the text. She's reading herself into text. She's reading us into text. That's narcissus. Uh, and she doesn't like. She does not have a clear. Un- she doesn't have a clear understanding of the text. So. Uh, she should not be preaching. And I think if she continues down this path, it will be revealed that she is a false teacher. I don't want to see that happen. I really don't. Uh, we got too many false teachers for very likable. Yeah, I don't want to see. She's likable too. Like, I don't dislike her whatsoever. Uh, but she should not be preaching. I, this is not something she's called to do. It really isn't. Uh and she needs to, you know, stick to what she's good at and be faithful in that because this isn't it. This really is not it. Uh, and the the more she goes down this path, I think the more obvious it will be that she, you know, could fall into being a false teacher. I'll definitely revisit this in the future, but otherwise... Uh, again, false teachers get worse over time. She's 24 years old now. She'll get worse. If she continues down this path, she will get worse. So I don't want to see that happen. 
this is the Evangelical Dark Web. If you like the kind of content that I do, subscribe to the channel. And if you really like the kind of content, you can become a Patreon-like subscriber at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. Uh, let me know what you think about what I think, and I will catch you on the next one. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.